adherents of scriptural authority, people who claim to derive their morals from scripture, do not really do so in practice, and a very good thing, too, as they themselves, on reflection, should agree. This is Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion as he comes to his critique of the Holy Scripture. In this show, we're going to answer his critiques about the holy book that he so despises that he finds to be morally repugnant that is the Bible, the Old and the New Testament. We're talking about that today on Sinners and Saints. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an Edge. Oh, we are so happy that you've joined us on Sinners and Saints today. Adam Kalustian here, your co-host with Moses Jambazian and John Sautel. We are pastors at local United Reformed Churches in Ontario, California, Pasadena, California, and Diamond Bar, California. It is our privilege to continue on our series reviewing, critiquing, analyzing The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. This is our fourth show, and... Let's see, first couple of shows we affirmed a lot of his critiques about religion in general and many of the things done in the name of Christ and of Christianity. Last time we exposed one of the most fundamental flaws of an atheistic worldview. They will try to be morally outraged at certain things. They will take a moral position on a number of issues, but of course they give no account for morality whatsoever. What Dawkins did, and we mentioned this in the last show, is at the end of his chapter on trying to describe the roots of morality, uh, one of the things he did at the end of that chapter was to say, well, even though, you know, religion may provide really, beside patriotism, the only objective standard for morality, those who adhere to or those who find their moral principles in a religious book often neglect its just blatant inconsistencies. One inconsistency is... The historicity of these books, he says, which we'll address in the next show. But we're going to talk today about what Dawkins thinks are just obvious contradictions, self-contradictions in the Bible's view of morality. Not only that, but he says that even Christians don't believe and practice the morality that the Bible upholds because it's preposterous. And no civilized person at this point in evolutionary history would ever act in the way that the Bible teaches us to act. Well, this is why I think he discounts uh, Christianity so easily. Or at least he's trying to insulate himself against the charges that Christian theists may bring up against his positions when we talk through the, the chapter on morality. is because, because, okay, yeah, you want to have your theistic model of morality. Well, let's break open your Bible. And he brings out every outlandish, crazy example you can think of and then says, See, you guys don't do that. You don't sacrifice your daughters like Jephthah. You don't barbecue your sons like Isaac and Abraham. So see, you don't even believe the stuff's in your book, so I don't have to take your book seriously, which is ridiculous. I mean, he doesn't even make any attempt to try to understand these stories in their context. And besides that, and we'll get into this in a moment, you show me some Christian scholar out there who's trying to to fashion moral arguments and, and give you uh, ethical behavior systems out of the stories that he chooses. Nobody is. I mean, it's a ridiculous argument. Well, not nobody is, but the few who do are so extreme and ridiculous, they're rejected even by the hokey forms of Christianity that we've, you know, 
constantly reject on this program. But anyway, let's uh, let's slow down and say, okay, what is his approach to the critique of the Bible? He says, well, your route for using the Bible as a moral guide is one of two. You have two options, as I see it. Now, of course, he is so simplistic theologically. I mean, it's like he hasn't even read any of classic Christian theology to discern how we've approached the Bible in terms of gleaning our morals from it. But aside from that... And it's pure arrogance, because, you know, he's smarter than everybody. 2,000 years of Christian tradition, history, and theologians, you know, thinking very deeply on the Scriptures, come up with a lot of very sophisticated ways of understanding it. No, no, no. We're going to set that aside. speaks from on high. We're going to set that aside. Yeah, from Cambridge. Because because my... This is how it is. I'm a biologist, but I'm going to tell you how to read this book. But anyway... Your route for using the Bible as a moral guide is one of two, he says. Either you go by the Bible characters and the heroes, you follow their example, or you go by the Ten Commandments. And I don't want to hear the excuse, Dawkins says, you know, I don't take the Bible literally, because uh, after all, what possible redeeming lessons, I'm quoting from him here, can be gleaned from some of the stories in this book. And even if even if you can rede- you find some redeeming you know, qualities from these stories and get some redeeming lessons out of them, everybody just picks and chooses what parts of the Bible they want anyway. And that's his point. Very few people, including religious people, actually get their morals from Scripture. Now, in one sense, we would agree with him. I yeah, mean, people sure. do pick and choose. But, but fundamentally, we're not we're not agreeing with his main point, which is you can get morals out of the scripture one or two ways. First way, let's talk about this one. All right. You look at the Bible characters, the Bible heroes, and you imitate them. Right. Now, do we believe that? Or, I mean, let's think about some well, of the examples we do. We that have he gives. songs, those Sunday school songs, Dare to Be a Daniel, Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho. Yeah. And sadly, but true, yeah, a lot of Christians do approach the Bible that way. Yeah, his critique is valid there, and he's probably even been subjected to some of that, where they take actually a particular action of one of the heroes and magnify that and then reject all the remainder of the narrative, which shows what a bum the guy really was. Okay, let's take Abraham, for example. So... Dawkins takes Abraham to task for his repeated lies, which result in judgment against Pharaoh and others, but of course not him. He's always protected. And the story of Isaac, say, right. being sacrificed okay. as psychological torture on this child. Some hero this Abraham is, the Let's father stop. of all believers, uh, okay. Dawkins says. Okay, but that that's what's funny. Yeah, I, I think that is a very interesting place to pick on Christianity, because you're right. Abraham is a towering figure in biblical revelation. But interestingly, the example, one of the examples he chooses out there, uh, he selects out for a consideration is Abraham's pimping out of his wife to, first of all, uh, Pharaoh and then Abimelech. Well, as far as I remember, I have never come across any, and, and I've seen a lot of abuses of Scripture, the five smooth stones of David, uh, dare to be a Daniel stuff, Jesus wants me for a sunbeam stories. I have never come across anybody who ever uses this as a positive example is that a man should pimp out his wife to a local power figure in order to enjoy material blessings. Okay, but Dawkins says, see, John, yeah, but that's because everybody's arbitrary. You no. just take the part, see, John, no, listen, now, you're going to have to respond to this. You can't just brush it off because, Chris, look, you are part of the evolutionary developed human race at this time in history, which is, you know, quite advanced, we must say, and Everybody knows that you shouldn't be pimping out your own wife, okay? And that's why when you read the Bible, you just so easily dismiss the forefather of right. your, your 
faith, you know, the father of all nations, Abraham. You just dismiss this, not as an example, but as something sure. that, but you, what is your basis for that? Well, no more than we would select out Moses killing the Egyptian as a moral model, or David uh, having Uriah killed so he can commit adultery with Bathsheba. No, just because these ex- these things are recorded in Scripture of the sins of some of these biblical characters does not mean that we have to extrapolate from that absolute moral values that everybody has to live by. And exactly what you're saying is that the scripture condemns a lot of these actions. It already tells us that, look, here is Abraham, the towering figure of the faith. In fact, the one to whom we are grafted, according to the New Testament. And what are we told? It's not by his works that he was justified before God, but by grace God credited to him the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the very point of these stories is the inadequacy of Abraham, the inadequacy of all men apart from Christ. And so when he points out their moral failings, we would simply say, yes, we acknowledge the moral failings because Scripture also calls them moral failings. And we'll join with you in saying these are outlandish. No, no one should be modeling their life after these examples. But you see here, this is part of what Dawkins does. He is an unsophisticated consumer of the Bible. He assumes that the only way to read it is how he reads it, or the few crazy liberal theologians that he's read. And he he quotes Bishop Spong approvingly, as if here's a truly enlightened one. I don't know of anybody who takes Bishop Spong seriously. Okay, but he uh, approvingly quotes his way of approaching scripture and his enlightened understanding, claiming he's light years ahead of most Christians today. But, you know, Dawkins does not even take the time to understand how Christians have understood these stories and interpreted and applied them. If he had, he would realize he doesn't have any arguments here because the vast majority of high watermark theologians, Bible interpreters, do not treat this, the Bible, in the simplistic, crude, uh, childlike fashion that he does. So you have the Lot account where he offers his daughter up to be basically gang raped. Judges 19, another similar story. The man from Gibeah offering his daughter and the concubine who are gang raped all night. The concubine dies and is chopped up and sent to the 12 tribes of Israel. Right. And, you know, Jephthah sacrificing his daughter and a vow to God, etc., etc. I mean, there are all kinds of stories like this. And Christians are not arguing, well, Dawkins, that these are moral examples. And we don't believe the Bible is positing that. Stop on those stories. Though. Go back to Lot. I mean, there there is nothing exemplary about the story. That's part of the point. Remember, Abraham is praying to God. He's dickering, in a sense, with God. If there are 50, if there are 40, if there are 30, if there are 10, will you spare this city? And it turns out the only righteous person available is Lot. And the point of the story is, this, in a sense, that's not the only point of the story. It's about far more than Lot and his behavior. But there's something that's indicated in Lot's behavior, is if this is the only righteous guy that ought to save Sodom and Gomorrah, there's no righteousness, because this guy is not a good guy either. He is thoroughly morally debased as, as a human being. And some of the stories that he's quoting, they're from the points of the scripture where the authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are listing for you why the human given the law, is inadequate to achieving the righteousness that God requires. So the murder of the concubine after she's been raped and then butchering her and all that, these are all part of the failure of man to keep the law that later on Paul will argue, Christ will argue. And so for him to say, well, these are your moral examples, 
No, that's the very thing. They are actually the examples of what man does apart from God's well, grace. I think and that's the immorality. exact point of the passages. This is what people do when they disobey God. They become debased. They become savage. Uh, one problem, he quotes from the book of Judges, without even understanding what's going on there. There is a repetition of this cycle of serving the Lord, falling away, and then being led, into, being made captive. And one of the reasons why that happens is because... They have chosen to disobey God. You have to go back to biblical history when God says you will not make a covenant with the people who live in the land. You will not make treaties with them. You, because if you do, you're going to follow after the religion. When you follow after the religion, you're going to fall away from me. And then disaster is going to come upon you. Calamity, because it has to, based upon the Mosaic covenant that God make with Israel. So he takes none of this into consideration and misses the whole point of these stories. These these stories are proving his point. Yes, these people are not exemplary. They're morally debased. And this is exactly what happens when you turn your back on God. And yes, Mr. Dawkins, we with you affirm... Dr. Dawkins. Dr. Dawkins, we affirm with you that Christians who use these stories and try to simplistically make them sound moral, that they are failing. And therefore, yes, you are right to condemn... And to critique these people for their but foolish again, interpretation. Who, who, where have you ever read anybody uh, using these stories as a recipe for successful living? I, I've heard some of these stories. So. You, you've heard of yeah, you've heard I've, of uh, be like the Levitical priest who dissected up his poor, abused, raped concubine who was left for who actually was dead, and he did dismembered her in twelve pieces and sent her. I mean, what possible moral or spiritual lesson do you? do you get from that? Yeah, except for the negative example is don't be like this and see what happens when life is apart from God and Christ, when you rebel against him. But, you know, I just, look, I can't resist. you got to bring back in the point we made last time. I mean, even though we agree with Dawkins and his, you know, if anybody would use these as moral examples, you should get rid of them. Look, on what basis does an atheist take the position that any of those things were wrong? I mean, for all he knows, Abraham had a good reason for pimping out his wife, right? For all he knows, Jephthah sacrificing his daughter in a vow to God was a good thing. Actually, you know, you know what? It would fit with his overall theory, one of his commandments, that uh, you should have sex with whoever you want to, whenever you want to, at any time you want to, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Well, how does he know that Abraham wasn't just following Dawkins' rules 2,000 years before they were actually written down? Right, and on what, right, on, what, years, right so. on what foundation can you say that it was hurting those whom he abused or whatever? It's just ridiculous. Abraham was enlightened thousands it's, of years before his it, time. It is completely <laughs> arbitrary, completely arbitrary. Well, okay, what, all right, but, but, but there's but some other funny. characters that we got to get to. Hold but on. But it's I funny, though. I mean, it is. If you, it reads like a refrain as you listen to because he'll go through all these outlandish stories, and you can almost see him doing this tongue-in-cheek with a big smile on his face like he's just putting the X exclamation point on all of his points and then he'll he'll keep repeating all i'm trying to establish is that we don't derive our morals from the scripture he picks the most barbaric crazy violent examples possible and says see none of you people believe what your bible says anyway so why should we take it seriously yeah as if as if that's how christians get their morality out of the bible as if we don't have a more sophisticated biblical view <laughs> like of sin and the yeah abraham pip his wife i pip my <laughs> wife no you have a you you have a a thoroughgoing biblical contextual view of these stories and as we've said, there are actually examples in the negative, uh, things you ought not to do and the depravity of the human race for rejecting. Okay, let's get, let's get aside from some of the heroes, as he would call them, and talk about another major character in the Old Testament that he hates, God. Uh, God, 
for example, drowned the whole world in the Noah story, women and children included. Some hero this God is that we are going to uh, now imitate. Well, what do we say to that? Well, we quote from his own Ten Commandments. His Ten Commandments says that you are allowed to punish people when they do things wrong. Where is it? Here we go. Um, you got that, Moses? Do not overlook evil or shrink that? from administering justice. <laughs> say that again, Moses, now that you found it. <laughs> Do not overlook evil or shrink from administering justice, but always be ready to forgive wrongdoing freely admitted and honestly regret it. Oh, this is from Wright, one of his proposed new, or one of his friend's proposed new Ten Commandments. So by this standard, we would say, well, God is dealing with those who are wrongdoers, who are evil in his sight, who are not sincerely repenting, and therefore he has full right and authority to judge and condemn them. Yeah, I I mean, I don't care. Dawkins doesn't like the idea that God drowns the whole world in the Noah story. So well, what, though? God has the right to drown the whole sinful human race because he created them in his image, and they are duty-bound to obey him, and it's even gracious that he allowed the human race to go on after Adam sinned in the first place. But, again, more relevant to the argument, Dawkins has no reason to object because this is his own philosophy. This is his own stated moral code. Don't shrink back from administering justice. And if this is what all it is that God's doing is administering justice— then who is Dawkins to say against God, well, why did you do this? Now, He's again, just being consistent. Right. Now, again, of course, he. I think this is pretty funny because he accuses Christians of being uh, of, of using this too simplistically. And I think we'd affirm this here. People connect particular human sins with particular destruction in the world, although it's not clear, he says, in some ways exactly what Pat Robertson said. But he is reported to have blamed Hurricane Katrina... <laughs> <laughs> that was the result of Ellen DeGeneres moving. <laughs> Ellen DeGeneres moving to live in New Orleans. So, in other words, Katrina came on the world. Pat Robertson said because Ellen DeGeneres lives in New Orleans, and the way that Christians learn that is by these barbaric stories like God drowning the old world with the flood. Would someone like to explain why the city she was living in before didn't receive the judgment? And isn't Ellen DeGeneres moving in judgment enough for yeah. New Orleans? Like, this doesn't make any sense. So that's and, what, yeah. and none of us respect Pat Robertson's opinions on well, any of these things. That's just the whole things. point. He's always yeah. quoting from Pat Robertson, making this not-so-subtle connection between anybody who takes the Bible seriously and Pat Robin as Robertson, as, a, as if that's the only way you could do it. You can only take the Bible seriously and be a Pat Robertson, or the other option is you can be a liberal who, who, who doesn't take the Scripture seriously at all, and then your only problem is that you're just arbitrary. But that's the only—it's a false dilemma. That's well, the we only, should, then we should exclusively quote Stalin and look at Stalin's actions when we talk about atheists, and you know, that would be a fair exchange for Mr. Dr. Dawkins. It's no, it's not a fair way to do it, and he's really being quite clumsy and puerile. But let's let's continue to reflect on Dawkins' critiques of God of Yahweh. He says God has a capricious, worse than sexual like jealousy reaction to Israel's rapid desire to follow other gods. So, you know, he commands Moses to destroy all the Midianites, excepting, of course, the women and the children who are to be kept by God's people. And that just shows a total imbalance because God, Dawkins says, on the one hand, he will, he will tolerate daughters being offered for gang rape and more so than he will ever tolerate the worship of a false god made of wood or stone. This is, this is just 
ungodly, <laughs> you would say. This is unrighteous. This well, is wrong, and everybody knows it. And this is your God. What kind of a hero is he to be imitated? What I find is, is so amusing here is the glaring hypocrisy of what he's saying. Because basically, if you approach this from just a purely naturalistic, neo-Darwinian natural selection perspective, uh, Moses is acting exactly like Dawkins said he should. He had the, the soldiers kill all the older women who were useless for reproduction, and he spared all the virgins so that they could reproduce and uh, propagate their own race. What's wrong with that? What's so glaringly immoral about that? Right, as if any way he had any standard by which to say anything was moral or moral in the first place. But, I, you know, listen, again, does God have the right to kill all of humanity because of their sin? I mean, we could start with that premise. The answer is yes. And it's not capricious. It's not on a whim. Human murder is wrong. God judging the fallen human race according to his justice is not wrong. Now, you may not like it, Dr. Dawkins, and the unbelieving world does not like to think of people having to give an account to God for their sin, but just because you don't like it doesn't make it untrue. Not only that, just because you don't like it doesn't mean you have an argument against it. Well, not only that, a number of these unsavory episodes that Dawkins is going to refer to in terms of you know God taking out his vengeance on his enemies— are simply foreshadowings of what God is going to do. And I think this is the thing that ultimately just really chafes Dawkins and, and, and his ilk so much, is that there is a day coming, according to Scripture, and we believe this wholeheartedly, when there will be divine judgment and vengeance taken against everybody who is opposed to Yahweh. A number of these episodes in the Old Testament are simply foreshadowings of divine judgment. This is not God and some petty jealousy and a fit of anger runs out and squashes people like bugs because he had a temper tantrum. These are designed to be foreshadowings in history of what will come at Judgment Day. Right, and nor are these examples for a one-to-one correspondence in modern-day ethics. Right. I mean, you know, you got to keep that in mind. For example, he talks about God's commandment through Joshua to destroy Jericho and the invasion of the Promised Land in general you know, by the people that God raised up from the loins of Abraham. He says, Dawkins says, that all of that is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Hussein's massacres of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. Some heroes that you guys have, God commanding Joshua. Well, you're going to follow God, you're going to follow Joshua, then you might as well follow Hussein, you might as well follow anybody who's committing ethnic cleansing anywhere in the world. Well, listen, our answer to that is no. These are not examples for us to follow of ethnic cleansing. This is a foreshadowing of judgment. Now, certainly, I, I would agree with Dawkins that there are some people who profess to be Christians who read these stories very simplistically and use them to justify all kinds of personal acts of vengeance and even national acts of vengeance, right. and that is absolutely unacceptable. We even see that um, <laughs> by our the United States government today. The whole concept today. of United States foreign policy today? Oh, right, and, and quoting like uh, Old Testament war chants right. and you know slogans and rallies for the sake of defending their thing, and he's angry about Battle his own. Of the Republic, Dawkins the is, fighting the South. Dawkins yeah. is angry with his own government for the same kind of Preserve abuses. the union at all costs. And we've seen that throughout history. The difference, Dr. Dawkins, is we actually have a foundation, the scripture, by which to refute those perverse interpretations of that book, you as an atheist don't have any foundation to refute anything, to be outraged about any of this garbage. Again, the whole problem boils down to the fact that Dawkins does not want to cede to God his prerogative to be God. 
Dawkins wants to be God, standing in the gap, making the decisions, saying who lives, who dies, who gets blessed, who gets torched. And the fact of the matter is Dawkins is completely unwilling to yield or surrender the ground to God. God has the right to not only do what he will with his creatures, with his own creation, but as we pointed out again and again, these episodes are all about a foreshadowing, a divine justice that will take place before he establishes his people in the promised land to be a type of the eternal kingdom. He meets out the the foreshadowing of eternal justice here to kick the, the uncircumcised, unsanctified out of the land, which if you read and view the New Testament is all about God showing uh, on a small scale what will happen before the eternal kingdom is consummated and ushered in. Okay, two more stories. We're having fun with this, right? Two more stories that he finds repulsive that nobody really even believes, not even Christians would act this way. It's barbaric. All right, one. The atonement, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it's altogether repulsive. It's vicious, sadomasochistic, repellent, barking mad. Interesting ideas. Think of it. It's an instrument of torture and execution, That is this cross, that has become our sacred symbol. He quotes uh, Lenny Bruce. I don't know who Lenny Bruce yeah. is. He quotes him. If Jesus had been killed 20 years ago, this is kind of funny. It's if funny, Jesus though. had been killed 20 years ago, Catholic school children would be, would be wearing little electric chairs around their necks instead of crosses. It, I guess Lenny Bruce's quote and, and Dawkins' quote of Lenny Bruce is trying to get us to think how just barbaric this cross, you know, what really went on there is so vicious and violent and disgusting. If you really think about it, you wouldn't really wear it or you wouldn't really and practice it. And 100 years this. ago, it would have been a noose and a hangman's gallow. But again, he's missing the point, though. His argument is supposed to be against Scripture, and here he's talking about a habit that Christians have picked up of wearing the cross, and he says, well, this condemns your morality. No, it doesn't. Really, what he has to deal with is the fact that you have a God here who is actually willing to deliver, and then as he goes on with this, he actually completely now, in his own mind, gets so twisted He's not able to see grace when it's being demonstrated. Well, not only that, I don't remember anybody getting together and assigning the cross to be the sacred symbol of the Christian religion. I mean, that's something that people have decided to do on their own. Okay, but but his point in bringing this up really isn't so much the, the silliness of the cross being a sacred symbol. He's, he's more offended at the theology of the cross sure itself. He, he says, if God wanted to forgive sins, why not just forgive them? without having himself tortured and executed in payment. What kind of a hero is this? This is disgusting. But see, this is the point. You know, He does not agree with the fundamental premise that mankind has sinned against God. As Moses, you said, he sees offense in the cross. We see grace in the cross. And, and in a sense, too, we think the cross is disgusting, and it's horrific. It's awful. But this is what we deserved, and that's what makes it so amazing, is that Christ took this 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 awful punishment, this vicious punishment, this, in some sense, repellent punishment upon himself when we deserved it. That is grace and a good thing for us. But he's become so twisted and angry at God that here he is at the end, he goes, God is some hero. Like, yes, he is. He took upon himself the punishment, but he can't see this anymore. He's just out to find anything that he can say that could possibly sound bad, that he misses the most obvious and the most wonderful thing, that God is willing to take upon himself punishment in order to spare his own children. And so here you can see like the, the point that an atheist gets to, demonstrated by Dawkins, that he is unable to see love and grace when it's there. He's just too angry to ever be able to deal with it. Or he only wants a God of—he uh, he, wants—this is what I don't understand about him. 
What is wrong with having a God who is also justice? If you don't have a God who is justice, which the cross is, a, you know, very symbolic of, then how are you going to get justice in a world? How are you ever going to have enforcement of moral absolutes, which Dawkins himself wants, by the way. He wants there to be justice and morals. How are you going to get it if you do not have a God who is also not only love and grace, compassion, mercy, whatever, but also a God of justice? That's the whole point of Scripture. You can't deny who he is. And don't get Pastor John wrong. When he says, how are you going to get justice without a God who whatever, we're not saying, well, it would be nice to have this God, and that's why we believe in him. I mean, our point is, Dawkins, you used the category of justice just like every, one of, every other one of God's creatures in all of your argumentation, in all of your desires and everything else, and you get that from the image of the Creator who made you. You, you cannot escape the Christian worldview. You may not like it. You may not like to be called a sinner. You know, you talk about this sin is a nasty little preoccupation to have dominating your life. You know, what kind of ethical philosophy is it that condemns every child, even before it is born, to inherit the sin of a remote ancestor? Well, you know what? Your, your pious evaluations of the Christian worldview are any more or less valuable than anyone else's. The fact of the matter, it's true. It yeah. is true that we are fallen in a human race. You know, I may complain that I have dark hair or I don't like it. What kind of a world is it? It doesn't matter. I mean, I happen to like my dark hair, and don't get me wrong, but the point is, I can complain about it all I want, or I can embrace it all I want. It's still true, and Dawkins, because you don't like things, is not a philosophical argument against them. Well, also, back to Dawkins' refrain throughout the book, you know, he's obsessed with sex, and he has this quote from this guy here, Sam Harris, your principal concern appears to be that the creator of the universe will take offense at something people do while they're naked. You see, he doesn't want a god of justice who in Force Look, in, his, in his it's defense, like, <laughs> in his defense, all men are obsessed, obsessed with sex. Okay. What, I heard a statistic. What, I don't know what this has to do with the show, but it's interesting. A man <laughs> thinks about sex once every 53 seconds. Right, and women's like once every six years. Or yes, <laughs> depending on the woman. But I do think... I, I think that it's no surprise then when we read a man, you know, arguing against Christianity and morality that there's so many repeated references and various themes and angles to sex. Right when you're talking about the cross and the whole concept of justice, you know, he here he he and he you know, he injects us back in the discussion, which makes me again ask, Well, why are you concerned about this God? Well we can why speculate like Romans chapter one, right? Spends a lot of time, especially at the beginning of the pronouncement of sins. We've talked about this on the show when we're talking about Ted Haggard and stuff. Sexuality is such a big part of the perversity of the fallen human race. It's no wonder that it it's uh, up for so much discussion oh, and debate, and, and thoroughly and intertwined sort of with uh, with idolatry. Let me give is, you. Uh, I said there were is. there were two we wanted to to uh, talk about here. One, the other one is he complains about Judas uh, getting a raw deal in that his betraying of Christ was a necessary part of the cosmic plan, and yet you know he's still punished for it, presumably in hell for all of eternity. Now, look. This is the age-old so-called problem of the sovereignty, the control of God, and the responsibility of mankind. And again, now we're not going to go into that in depth in this show. I just want to point out, listen, that the atheist worldview, I mean, look, if you start with the premise that God being in absolute control of his world and mankind being free and responsible for his actions, if you start with the premise that those are absolutely incompatible and logically contradictory— then yeah, I mean, it's a problem. But our question is, on what basis do you start with the premise 
that a God who created the world cannot be in absolute control and man be responsible at the same time. We don't believe that that premise should just be accepted just because somebody doesn't like it. I mean, again, it's one of these things in the world that's true. And it's not a philosophically cogent argument to say, well, I don't like that it's true, or I see a problem there. You have to show that it violates, say, the laws of non-contradiction. Yeah, but he's not or even something. wrestling with that. He's just saying that Judas is getting a raw deal. Because Christ had to be betrayed somehow. Judas does it, and he's, his action is actually instrumental to leading the cross, which turns out to be the, the thing that redeems and saves people who trust in him. So, well, that had to be done. Somebody had to do it. Judas did it. So why does Judas get the rap? But Judas freely chose it. He doesn't even talk about that. I mean, maybe he thinks the whole thing is a complete myth. I mean, I don't know. But but what's wrong with it? The scriptures over and over again say that Judas freely chose what he did do. So what if he gets condemned and punished and commits suicide and you know going to hell because of what he did? He freely chose it, right? What's wrong with that? That's right, John. But uh, I want to shift gears here a little bit, all right? You got one or two roots, Dawkins says, if you want to follow the Bible to get your morals. One is to follow the characters, imitate them, the heroes, follow, be they God, be they Abraham, be they anybody else. We didn't even really get into Jesus, did we? He talked to, he kinda how Jesus. can we leave Jesus out? Yeah, he does. He says Jesus did depart from the Old Testament ethic, which we agree with in a sense and don't agree with in a sense. He uses the Sabbath, well, which is a tricky one. One of his prime examples, however, though, is say yeah, Jesus doesn't get his morals from the Bible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he brings Jesus up. He says, well, he doesn't clearly use the Bible. You can tell that. I mean, he just reasons this stuff out. Now, again, Dawkins, should... like you have no so – I guess okay. you, you haven't done any reading or you haven't given any careful thought to this. But, yes, Jesus does come to fulfill the Old Testament law, which was designed for temporary purposes. So there are aspects of the Old Testament law which he puts an end to, but the general purpose – I mean, these are some categories that you have not thought through, and it is overly simplistic. It's really ridiculous and childish to say that Jesus is not in line with the Old Testament. Well, apparently Jesus reading the Book of Mormon or the Confucian Analects or something <laughs> to come up with this stuff, the Koran. No, he's just the process of evolutionary development. What a, what a development moronic thing to say. Jesus doesn't get his values from the Bible. I mean, have you read any of the Gospels yet? I mean, how many times Well, as he'll, direct as he'll say, and as we'll talk about next time, as he'll say and we'll talk about next time, a lot of what we have is supposedly Jesus is not really what he did. Okay, but anyway, fine, we'll get into whatever. that next time. I mean, that, it's, it's silly. Let's move on. Jesus is a, a good, a good guy one to, to imitate. He, he's definitely guy. one you would want to look at and say, yes, I should you be. You have him over for dinner. I should do what he does, right. Um, even though Dawkins said he had somewhat dodgy family values. <laughs> <laughs> No, Let him hate his father and mother. And I, you got to wonder: Is Dawkins serious when he says that? No megalomania there either. <laughs> is Dawkins serious when he when he levies that critique, or does he recognize he's just being silly? Anyway, all right. So you're going to go one route, which is to follow the Bible heroes: be they God, be they Abraham, be they Jesus. We we you know he's shown that you can't do that, right? Or you go the other route, following the Ten Commandments. Now. And I don't know, I had never heard this before, but he, he understands the Ten Commandments to be fundamentally wicked and racist because love thy neighbor means love a fellow Jew because it was given to the Jews. So love thy neighbor meant love a fellow Jew. And thou shalt not kill means only thou shalt not kill a Jew. <laughs> so all of biblical history is basically like this in-group versus out-group uh, morality. 
the flip side of it, of course, is, of course, is the in-group and out-group hostility. So if you're Jewish, you're in. And, and it's great. Proof and if of you're this not Jewish, is, uh, you're out. Some sociological study done in Israel of, of Israelite children who uh, thought whether it was bad for uh, Jer- for Joshua to storm Jericho and you know basically kill all the inhabitants of the land. Of course, they're like, yeah, of course, they're not Jews. So that's the proof. <laughs> Two thousand years later, that these Israeli kids. <laughs> Kids are the proof that yeah, the Bible's just basically the Ten Commandments are basically racist. Love thy neighbor is love another Jew. Yeah, of course. The fact that you know this is within the context of the Mosaic Law, and Moses continues on giving the revelation of God, talking about the stranger and the visitor and the sojourner, and showing always love and compassion, and making sure that they're never subjected to injustice. All that he throws out yeah. because of sociological study yeah. 2000 brilliant brilliant proof and how about when jesus takes the pharisees to task when they were perverting and twisting these commandments along the lines of how dawkins interprets them parable what of the th- samaritan yes perfect example yes which proves that jesus was not talking about racism and how about god sending the gospel out to the gentiles and i mean this is you know his specific treasure of israel all part of his plan to really uh, save human, save his fallen race to the ends of the earth. Or how about John three sixteen? God so loved the world. I mean, uh, and then you have all these statements of neighbor being taken in that context. I guess that meant that God so loved the Jews that he sent Jesus. I mean, the whole argument is so simplistic and unthought through. It's it's amazing that he could use that as a, as as a critique of the Ten Commandments. Look, all of Dawkins' critique of using the scripture, be it the characters or be it the Ten Commandments, as a foundation for our morality. All of this critique is incredibly simplistic. I mean, foolhardy. You almost can't believe that a learned, a learned man would put this in print, but he does. And just like other critiques of the morality of the scripture, they all find themselves to be bankrupt. Not only that, they show again the contradiction of the atheistic worldview. There is no foundation by which he could look at any of these things and complain about them, even if he rightly was explaining them in this chapter. But he does not explain them rightly, and he still tries to take a stand against them. Look, he makes a statement that the idea that each of us shares a common humanity with members of other races and with the other sex is a deeply unbiblical idea that comes really from biological science. And we say no. The scripture is very clear that man is created in the image of God, that we are one human race in the image of God, that man and woman were created in the image of God. That is not a deeply unbiblical that idea, idea. That is a preeminently biblical idea that you are attributing to merely the uh, learnings and the philosophies of men. It's inconsistent. It doesn't hold up. Scripture is a reliable guide for our lives because it is the reflection of God's holy character uh, itself. Thanks for joining us, Sinners and Saints. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge.